I mean, all of these wrongful conviction cases, ultimately the system works. People do want to tell their stories. You break the law, there are consequences. Hello. Hello. Welcome back to True Crime and Consequences. I'm Kari. And I'm Brian. And we're a husband and wife who like to shoot the shit about true crime. Hello, honey. Hi. How are you? I'm good. Good. It's been a, been a bit. Yeah. We haven't recorded in a while. I'm glad to be here. And we're still talking about the Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey case, commonly known as Making a Murderer. And I believe we left off with Stephen and his attorneys deciding to file a lawsuit against Manitowoc County for his wrongful conviction and imprisonment in the Penny Bernston assault in 1985. Correct? I think so. I don't honestly don't remember exactly where we <laughs> left off. I'm pretty sure that's where we left off. Um, and I think we'd kind of established that he'd been given no other choice because the Wisconsin State Attorney General had decided not to penalize the Manitowoc County officials in their behavior and just their, their I should say, egregious behavior in getting him convicted in the first place and withholding evidence and from the that 1995-96 phone call that Andy Colburn got about um, the other person, Gregory Allen, confessing to that crime. Yeah, they found, like, no wrongdoing or something. Right. Which, uh, quote, the Wisconsin Attorney General Peg Lautenschlager, God, I love saying her name, uh, didn't see, quote, any criminal or ethical missteps, which just, I, well, there's I think at least... I said in the last episode what planet is she living on, and I still feel that way. Yeah, I mean, whether they reached the criminal level or not, there were definitely some ethical missteps, I think. Oh, for sure. No question. So the fact that she would make such a blanket statement like that, that there were no criminal or ethical missteps is just crazy to me because this man spent 18 years in prison for a crime he was proven through DNA and having an alibi and all that. Put it all together, he didn't do it. And they had local police department and stuff saying, you know, it's, there's another possible it's suspect here. There's, there's something else going on. You need to be looking at Gregory Allen and they just completely refused to even look in that direction. So, so he had no choice. I mean, the only way to get them to pay in some way for their egregious ethical missteps <laughs> was to sue him. So that's exactly what he did. To the tune of $36 million. That's a lot of money. Uh, especially for a small-ish county like uh, Manitowoc in Wisconsin. And, uh, I mean, that'll bankrupt a town easily. Yeah, at a, at a town level. I mean, you, you came from, from Michigan, Wisconsin area. They're not exactly well-to-do communities especially the smaller communities. We're not talking about, you know, um, what's the what's the big, why can't I think of what the big city in Michigan is? Detroit. It's not like Detroit where they had for what? a long time a lot of industry, like the automotive industry and all that. They don't anymore, but they did back then. They haven't been doing well for quite a while now. No, but back they then. They hit their heyday in the 50s and 60s and kind of. Oh, that's true. 
And then don't even get me started on the the water situation over there. But anyway, um, I'm sorry, that's not Detroit though. That's uh, oh, what's the name of that city that had the the water was like poison basically? And why can't I think of the name of the city? Anyway, I just that was like one of the Flint. bigger Flint. Thank you. That was one of the bigger cases lately of stuff. Uh, although, oh man, Wisconsin, Wisconsin, or was it Michigan? The flooding. Well, Oh, the dams? That, yeah. That's Michigan. Michigan, my prayers are with you. We have family in Michigan and Wisconsin and Illinois, kind of all in that general vicinity. And man, the, the dams being overflowed, I guess. I mean, they didn't really break, did they? They just kind of over overflowed. To be honest, I haven't uh, read all the, the stories on it, yeah, but, but they, my- they overflowed. I don't know if there was failures involved after they, you know, sometimes the spillways... You know, yeah. they're earthen dams. Oh, okay. So yeah, once they start overflowing the uh, the low spot, the spillway, sometimes they can continue to fail. I don't know if that happened in this case, yeah, so I don't, don't want to speculate. But, but. but either way, that is that is uh, Brian here's kind of home area. That's where he grew up, up until he was about 10 years old. And uh, it means a lot to our family. So our prayers are with you, Michigan, and we hope you all are okay, especially with what a horrible time to have something like that happen right in the middle of a damn quarantine with a global pandemic. It's awful. So my prayers are with all of you guys, and I hope you're okay. And if, if you're a listener from Michigan, hey, we're praying for you. And, and please feel free to, if you're watching the YouTube version, leave a comment, and I will include you in my prayers by name if you would like. So our thoughts are with you. We also have an email, right? Yes, we do. We have truecrimeandconsequences at gmail.com. So please also email me if you'd like, because I would love to include you in my nightly, my nightly good thoughts and vibes and prayers. I'm a religious person. Okay, in case anyone was wondering. I just don't believe in organized religion. So anyway, back to, back to Stephen. Um, so they file this lawsuit, and of course there's a process that you have to go through when you file the lawsuits. You know, you file them in the courts, and then they start doing these things called depositions, which is where all the people that have been named as parties in the case have to testify under oath um, about their actions uh, that led to the lawsuit. So we have a whole lot of people involved. I mean, we had, you know, obviously Stephen and his legal team, but then you had the state and their legal team, and you had Manitowoc County officials, you had the sheriffs, um, you had the district attorneys, you had all of the police officers and detectives that investigated. I mean, you just, everybody was being scrutinized at this point because a really horrible, egregious thing had happened to this man and somebody needed to answer for it. You know, even if he didn't win the lawsuit, you know, they needed to at least answer for their actions because this wasn't about just Stephen. Stephen's thought process here was not only did he deserve basically and I'm sorry, you know, but he didn't want this to happen to other people. Like, cause if it can happen to him, he was just kind of an everyman, you know, he wasn't anyone special. He was, he was just an everyman. And if it can happen to him, it can happen to anybody. And we all know for a fact, if you're a true crime fan, that this does happen to anybody all the time. These things are not isolated incidents. It doesn't happen in a bubble. 
the only reason we know so much about these particular cases, like the West Memphis Three and Stevens case and all of that, is because they got big press. But for everyone like that, like we've said before, there's hundreds, if not thousands of cases all over the country all the time, just like it. Yeah, no one's immune. Right, exactly. So I'm, you know, whether you're a, a teenager who likes to dress as a goth in the Bible Belt or a salvage yard worker in Wisconsin, you know, just keeps to himself and, and doesn't really bother anybody, you know, and everyone in between those <laughs> is at risk if our system is allowed to continue the way it is. So we apologize if you hear a rumbling, there's a garbage truck. So in addition to the lawsuit, um, there was also a lot of politicians in the Wisconsin area, the greater Wisconsin area, that had taken notice of the situation with Stephen and the fact that he had been wrongfully convicted and had spent 18 years in prison, that they started um, with him, of course, a, a organization called the Avery Task Force. And the whole goal behind the Avery Task Force was to get some laws and legislation, legislation, I can talk, I promise, put in place to make sure that anyone who was proven to be wrongfully convicted of a crime in the state of Wisconsin was guaranteed restitution if it was proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that they were innocent of the crime they were convicted of. They get restitution period, end of discussion. There's no way that the state can try to weasel out of it or the county can try to weasel out of it. If it's proven, you get paid. That uh, was. And how much were they going to? Um, it so for the statute itself, it would have been mandated um, at about twenty five k per year with a four hundred and fifty. Or no, I'm sorry, it's twenty five k per year with no cap was what they were searching for. So in Stevens' case, that would have equated to a four hundred and fifty million or four hundred fifty thousand dollars, which I know doesn't sound like a lot for eighteen years, but I mean when you're dealing with legislation and all that, you, you kind of have to keep your numbers a little more modest. The original number thrown around was 5K a year, which is nothing, you know? Yeah, that's not So they much. all were like, no, no, that's not enough. It's got to be at least 25K a year, which I mean, if you figure back then someone working a minimum wage job, they were probably making about that, right? So it's kind of... Well, and yeah, you can also figure what they would have made Minus their expenses too. Oh yeah, I didn't. Yeah, it's not paying for their food. Yeah, that's room true. Room or board, you know. Type. That's true. But either way, it was going to. They were trying to get it passed at twenty five k per year restitution with no cap because the the state had originally wanted a five k per year with a twenty five k cap. Meaning, you spent thirty years in prison for something you didn't do. It doesn't matter. All you get is twenty five k. And the Avery Task Force was like. Hell no, that that's not right. That's not fair. That you can't put a cap on that because the the terms served are so varying in their length. I mean, you have some people who only served maybe a year, and then you have people like Stephen who served eighteen years. And then lately, we've been seeing a lot of cases of people twenty years, twenty five years, twenty eight years, thirty four years. I mean, it's yeah, yeah. So they need to be fairly. Uh, compensated for, I mean, I don't think there's any amount of money that is a fair compensation for losing years and years of your life to something you didn't do because you've just ripped away all their constitutional rights. You know, you have the right to to live your life and, and the, what, the pursuit of happiness or whatever. And well, I mean, you can't do that in prison. 
technically there that's not a constitutional right, it's but the, still. It's in the Bill of Rights. Doesn't that make it a right? There's no Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I I never took constitutional law because it bored the crap out of me. No no offense. Some to of the, any some of that stuff was actually the Bill of Rights is a very defined set of rights. Right. But um, we're going to say right a lot, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It doesn't anyway. mean that you don't have a right to be happy and all that, but it's not a defined constitutional right. You know? Okay. Well, still, I don't think there's any amount of money that compensates you for, for that, but at least it gives you a chance to start getting your life back on track because it's not like you're going to walk out of prison and have a job or a place to live necessarily, or, you know, so all of, so a set amount of restitution based on the time you spent will give you that kind of leg up because, and I think that would help with recidivism. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, don't you think that making sure that anybody, because a lot of times when people get released from prison, whether they committed the crime or not, they have a really difficult time integrating back into society. So like getting jobs and having families and homes and all that stuff and so a lot of times they end up turning to illegal means to get money, such as like dealing drugs or running drugs for somebody else or running guns or whatever. They're doing illegal things because they no one will give them a shot because they they have a record. Right. But if they get a lump sum when they come out so that they can get a place to they live, get, a leg up. get established, they have time to then find I feel like that's going to reduce recidivism and... and and, and, and of course, what ultimately comes from that is reincarceration, and we don't want that. So I think it makes a lot of sense to make sure these people get restitution. Now, I'm not saying that if you committed the crime you were convicted of and you, you know, you're a felon and you get released that you should get anything. Obviously, you did what you did. and Yeah, and it's your punishment for doing it. It's punishment, it. yeah. But, but you shouldn't be punished for being wrongfully convicted. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, Representative Mark Gundrum, he is the Wisconsin State Assemblyman and founder of the Avery Task Force, just felt that something had to be done about this, this unfair system. And his goal really was not to just ensure that, that wrongfully convicted people got restitution, but that people stopped getting wrongfully convicted in the first place. Now, that's a lofty goal because I don't, I don't even see how that's possible. Like, I don't know how... You could you could stop that in its tracks. I don't think you could ever eliminate it. I right. mean, it's it's kind of unless you just stopped convicting anybody. But it seems that over the years there's been some uh, problems with the way the system is balanced. That's, oh, for sure. So, for sure. There's there's a public opinion and that transfers into the jury pools that the state doesn't prosecute innocent people. Well, they flat out to some said people. that. They flat out said that in the West Memphis well, 3 case during the that's the state's the proposition. But I'm talking about the people that actually sit in the jury. There's, oh, sure. There's always, you hear it. I, I, if, if you're accused in the media and you are arrested, I hear it all the time at work. And there's just an automatic assumption. Mm -hmm. You are guilty. Yeah. You know, if they, if, they arrest no, you and like, it hits the paper, you're guilty. You're say, already. I was going to say it's like in our local paper, whenever there's a, a like an article about someone who was arrested for something and, and it usually involves, you know, child sex abuse cases. But 
um, you see it all the time. Like on Facebook, someone will share the story. You know, this person got arrested for X, Y, Z, again, usually involving child sex abuse. And what you get is just this waterfall of some of the most vile things I've ever heard in my life of like, they should be strung up by their dick and flogged with wet noodles. You know, I mean, it's just like, yeah, they want vigilante justice. They, they don't want, there's no a proof trial. yet. There's no proof yet. They've only been accused. They have not been convicted. And that's another thing I want our listeners to really understand is that's my stance on the legal system in general is that it's, it's fatally flawed, but also one thing that needs to stop is this uh, trial by media crap. Court, or people used to call it trial by the court of public opinion, and I think it's still called that. But just because someone is arrested for something, I don't care how egregious the accusations are, it does not automatically mean they actually did it. Now, they very well did, but it doesn't. Abso- it's not an absolute. It has to go through the the judicial system. It has to be properly adjudicated. If after it's properly adjudicated, that person is convicted of those charges that were lodged against them, you can say whatever you want and I don't care. But don't, you can't base your opinion off accusation alone. It's not fair to the system. No, it prejudices the whole system. But I mean, it's always been that way to some level. The problem is now with the, I think the reason it's so prevalent now social damn media is why well with the the internet there's so much ability to communicate and there's so much ability to form opinions before an actual trial that it can be really difficult to get an unprejudiced jury pool well because it's 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 instantaneous information i mean the second someone is arrested like within five minutes it's in the damn paper you know what I mean? And, and it's so all across social media. And there's no time for anybody to use critical thinking. It's all emotional. I don't think critical thinking ever came into play in this stuff. <laughs> but Right. But the point is, my point is, that it it's more pervasive. Right. And it's more far-reaching. So before, you might have been able to go, you know okay, this this jury pool's tainted because of the local media. Maybe we can pull from the next county. Or they move the whole trial to the next county. But you can't do that now because Mm-mm. the whole state, the whole country It'll knows about it if it's bad world. enough. It doesn't you know. ju- Unlike the West Memphis 3 case, which was in 1993 before the internet was such a pervasive thing, you know, the having it published in the paper tainted the jury in that immediate area in West Memphis, but it didn't really make its way anywhere else. So they were able to move, well, the idea being you could move the trial to a completely different area and you wouldn't have that tainted jury pool. Now, we already know from from hearing the story that that wasn't a completely accurate assessment, but at least back then, that was more of an option. Now, even if you move cases to completely different states to try to find an unbiased jury pool, forget it. It's been all over Facebook. There's no way you're going to find an unbiased jury pool. The only way you can do that is the second someone is arrested for something, it's the judge orders an immediate gag order. I mean, that's really all you can do. But you can't do that because we have, as the, the public, has a right to know. So Yeah, I mean, you ha- you're balancing the fairness of the judicial system against freedom of the press. and Which is a First Amendment right. So Yeah, um, so there's a lot of stuff that goes on there, but... Yeah. But social media and and the internet has made an already messy judicial system much, much messier. 
And I, I don't want to get strongly political, but there's also problems with, because of the way, um, in my view, because of the way that the uh, social media has changed things to more sensationalized stuff, the, the news media as a whole has had to adapt to try and stay alive, and they become more sensationalized. Instead of reporting oh, yeah. just facts, they put more emotion and more they more of a clickbait meet headline, which is all people read clickbait. most of the time nowadays, yeah. is the headline. So you put in there that this person did this, and yeah. Right. That's all people read, and that's what they assume. Right. Exactly. And it's a sad state of, affa- of affairs, but it is what it is. So we, you know, as a society, we just kind of have to find a way to look work around it. But it, it definitely has hampered the judicial system's ability to be fair and impartial as if they were fair and impartial to begin with. They weren't, but at least now, I mean, now it's to an even worse degree. Yeah. So I think we've gotten a little off topic. No, we're talking about true crime legal system stuff. Nothing about the legal system is off topic. Thank you. So, um, in 2003, December of 2003, the Avery Task Force began their hearings about the automatic restitution if you're proven to be innocent. Stephen testified. Penny Bernston testified on Stephen's behalf because, well, she knew at that point he's not the one who attacked her. It was right. Gregory Allen. So she felt terrible because she had been manipulated by the police to name him as her attacker. And uh, she felt awful. And she kept apologizing to Stephen. And Stephen's like, you have nothing to apologize for. It wasn't your fault. You were put through this terrible traumatic situation. And and obviously, you're not going to be in your right mind. And they took advantage of that. You know, and they did. I mean, so it's pretty sweet. It would have been very much, I think it would have been easier for him to be angry with her. Yeah. But he wasn't. And I thought he was angry at the right people. He was angry at law enforcement for even pointing her in that direction. Well, and the fact that she was willing to admit that she was wrong, you know. Yeah. Okay, good. But this, the the police didn't even want to admit that they were no, wrong. No, she was fully willing to admit she so. was wrong. And the police were like, nope, sorry. we." Mm-mm. But other than filing the lawsuit and, of course, the Avery Task Force stuff going on, which was a good thing. Stephen's life was going really well. He was living on the Avery Salvage Yard property with his fiance, Jody Stachowski, I believe is how you say her last name. Again, these Midwestern names get me. You know, things were things were just going good. He was working for his family's salvage business again. He was spending some time with his kids that he hadn't been able to see in a very long time, and he was happy about that. I mean, not a ton of time, but some time. And things were just going really good. And, uh, you know, he was interviewed by the press several times about the lawsuit. And, and he kept trying to say, it's not about the money. You know, I'm, I'm not suing for the money. I mean, in order to have an effective civil lawsuit, it has to have a dollar amount attached to it. But it's about holding law enforcement accountable for what they did to me. And hopefully, in turn, prevent them from doing a similar thing to somebody else. So he had, you know, altruistic reasons for... But, I mean, $36 million ain't nothing to sneeze at for a guy who's been poor his entire life. Yeah. That's... You know, and his plan was to get this money, this $36 million, and then buy a whole bunch of property up in Michigan, because he liked Michigan better than Wisconsin, 
And he wanted to move the whole 40 acre salvage yard to Michigan. I was like, uh, Steve, I don't know if that's a reasonable thing to want or even logistically possible. We're talking 40 acres of broken down cars. Like, how do you move that? I don't think you would but actually wanted, move it. You point, you would start a new salvage yard. The point was he wanted scrap. he wanted out of Wisconsin, you know, which is completely understandable because he didn't feel like he could get a fair shake anywhere in Wisconsin anymore, which is a completely understandable uh, interpretation of what had happened to him. I think so. Depositions in the civil suit itself began in two thousand five. And that officer I told you guys about um, that interviewed uh, Penny Bernston at the hospital, the one who said, that sounds like Stephen Avery, was one of the first people to be deposed. And she did admit in her deposition that she suggested that her uh, Penny's description of her attacker did sound like Stephen Avery. And then she made some other derogatory statements about Stephen to other officers calling him a dirty man and and just all kind of, well yeah he worked at a salvage yard what was he going to be sparkling clean all the time he was also 19 20 23 years old working in a, yeah, come on like why is that a reason to judge somebody but whatever and that she even said that to the dci investigators too the ones who um, were investigating the impropriety and their reports were submitted to the ag and then the ag was like nope it's fine you know I'm paraphrasing. She didn't say that, but that's sure how you take her statement. Nope, it's fine. They did nothing wrong, which is BS, but whatever. And then I think, did we talk about Jean Couchet? I believe we did. He was the one who drew the, I should say drew, more like traced, copied, whatever you want to call it, the uh, composite sketch. Yeah. Yeah. He was also deposed, obviously, in on October 26th of 2005 and his testimony blew my mind because when he was asked by Stevens or told by Stevens attorneys well now that we know that Stephen Avery did not commit the assault against Mrs. Bernston and Jean Couchet goes I don't know that and they're like excuse me and he's like I don't know that I don't know that he didn't do it and he goes we have DNA evidence proving that Mr. Avery did not commit this crime and that Mr. Allen is the one who committed the crime. And Jean Couchet actually literally in his deposition said that he thought the DNA may have been fabricated. To which I say, you mean he's admitting in testimony that DNA evidence can be fabricated? Mm-hmm. Or at least in his opinion, it can. Right. Which, I mean, technically, he's not wrong. It can. But seriously? Seriously. They have DNA proving it was Gregory Allen found underneath her fingernail. How else would she get Gregory Allen's DNA underneath her damn fingernails, Jean? Come on, Jean. Seriously? By the way, Jean Couchet has since passed away, so I don't want to say too much negative about the dead, but he was a real douchebag, and... <laughs> So I'm not exactly sorry that he's not around anymore. I feel bad for his family if he has any, which I'm sure he does because everyone does. But um, he really was a piece of work. I mean, to, and then he sat there and stood, he, he stood by his original sketch. Like even though, and, and then he has the audacity 
to uh, have this framed piece of artwork in his office that uh, has the the composite he drew at the hospital, allegedly at the hospital, and then the mugshots of Stephen Avery, but not Stephen Avery from being arrested for Penny Bernstein. Stephen Avery having been arrested for his the the situation with his cousin Sandra, and they're freaking identical. So his drawing was identical to the mugshot they already had on file before the before he was ever arrested for the Bernstein thing. Yeah. And he had it hanging on his wall in his office like he's flipping proud that he fabricated a fucking drawing. Like, what? Look how good a job I did copying this photo. Look at how great I did copying it. It's so great. And actually, it was shit, by the way. It was a shit drawing. I have seen some fantastic composite sketches. Some of the ones of Ted Bundy were amazing. They looked exactly like him. It was frightening. The this, ones of the Unabomber were amazing. amazing. This looked like... Uh, Stephen Avery as a freaking uh, Calvin and Hobbes cartoon character. <laughs> like, it was terrible, but whatever. He was not a good artist. Let me just put it that way. Um, at the same time as all these depositions for the lawsuit are happening, the legislatures are moving, f- legislators are moving forward with the Stephen Avery task force and the bill to get the restitution and all of that. And Stephen stood to get $450,000 from that. Um, once, once the bill was passed. Also during this time, Stephen's fiance, girlfriend, whatever you want to call her, Jody, had gotten arrested for a DUI. She'd been arrested for DUI several times. She was an alcoholic, unfortunately. And, um, I understand that's a huge struggle, so I'm not going to criticize her for it. But, um, at the time that all these depositions were going on and all that, she had actually ended up in jail for seven months because it was like her fourth DUI offense. And as we all know, the more DUIs you get, the more strict your punishment is. So she was in for like seven months-ish. And then one of the other things that kind of came out during the depositions was when they were deposing Sergeant Andy Colburn in the um, lawsuit the lawyers suddenly hit him with a bombshell that they had uncovered, um, which was a phone call that he had allegedly received in 1995 from a um, Brown County sheriff that is not named. It's just, you know, he got a call from a Brown County sheriff's deputy saying that someone in his jurisdiction who had been arrested had just confessed. This was 1995 had just confessed to committing a crime in Manitowoc County, a, a sexual assault in Manitowoc County, that another guy was in prison for, and he was innocent. Now, most officers, when they receive a call like that, would write it down, right? You get all the information you could out of this Brown County Sheriff's deputy or detective, and... uh you would go to your superior and say, hey, I just got this call. They're saying that someone in their jurisdiction just confessed to, you know, a crime that the wrong person is in prison. Well, there was only one crime that that could have been. And that was Stevens' case. And they buried it. Colburn didn't write a report. Colburn didn't tell anybody about it except for his superior officer 
James Lank, who also buried it. Remind me, what year was uh, Stephen convicted in? Uh, he was arrested in 85, and it was 80, late 85, early 86. I can't remember for sure. So but r- he, roughly went in, 10 he went years in jail in, in 85. Roughly 10 years into his sentence, 10 years into his they sentence. have information that says that he, he may not, have, may done not have done it. Right. And they bury it. There's no report written, no nothing. The only reason Stephen's defense team found out about this was they had submitted for discovery, which is, you know, getting evidence, collecting evidence. And in the midst of submitting and, and getting all this discovery together, they find a memo in a safe or a lockbox in the sheriff's office that was written the day after Stephen was released from prison in 2013 that documented this phone call. In 2013? When Stephen was released from prison in September. Eight years after the call. Eight years after the call. It's finally documented. It was very clear that it was a knee-jerk reaction to Stephen getting released and proven innocent in trying to cover their own asses. But it backfired because all it did was prove that they, they committed what's known as a Brady violation, which is withholding evidence. What they were probably afraid of is that the other sheriff's department might come forward with that. That oh, they had called, yeah, and I mean. then they'd be up for not having reported. That's what it at I mean. All. Is I'm sure that in the in the for, in the going through the discovery, that it was very possible that the Brown County Sheriff's Office would contact the defense and say, "Hey, we called them in 1995-96 and told them that X Y Z, and they buried it." You want to know who that prisoner was that was in Brown County at the time? Any guesses? Anyone? 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 Gregory Allen. Are you thinking Gregory Allen? Because you'd be freaking correct if that's what you were thinking. So, yeah, Gregory Allen confessed to the Penny Bernston assault, although he didn't use names. But he confessed to the Penny Bernston assault in 1995 in Brown County. And they called Manitowoc County and said, you've got the wrong guy in jail, in prison. This was 10 years in. He He sat there for another eight years before he was finally proven innocent through DNA. And then, only because of the lawsuit, did they discover that this had been buried. Talk about a disgusting, egregious, there was I so can't much think of enough doing. adjectives to express the wrongdoing there. It's horrible. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Not 2013. 2003. My God, I'm an idiot. Oh. <laughs> he wrote the report in 2003. Not 2013. Edit yeah, that. and my math sucked because I was like eight years. That would have been eighteen. Yeah, he wrote the report in two thousand three, which was after Stephen was released from prison. Literally within one to two days of him being released from prison, he wrote it up. I mean, why? Why? I don't. I don't get it. I don't get it. And then in the depth, so they ask James Link about it because he's deposed. And he says, yeah, I directed him to write the report because, you know, he told me about it. So I said, write it up in a report. And they're like, well, you mean in 1995 or in 2003? He goes, oh, no, in 2003, because Andy came to me and said, oh, I got and so 
Okay, so when he told you about it in 95, though, you didn't say squat. You didn't tell him to do anything. You're just like, eh, it doesn't matter. Right? And then Sheriff Kenneth Peterson, who was deposed on October 13th of 2005, claims that he knew nothing about this alleged phone call and lack of report. And, like, he just he's just like, I plead the fucking fifth. You know, like, I don't know anything. Did he actually plead the fifth or did he no, say he, he didn't know? No, he, he said he didn't know. Those are two different things. So. I know that. I'm just being silly. So, uh, Mark Rohrer, I believe that's how you say his name. He was the uh, district attorney at the time in, I believe, I'm not sure if it was in 1995 or in 2005 when they were taking the depositions. That was not clear to me, whether which time period he was the actual DA in. But he claims that he had heard from Colburn and Link about the potential Gregory Allen connection and even stated as much to several people over the years. And then another gentleman who was an ADA named, uh, which is assistant district attorney for those of you who don't know, um, Douglas Jones sent a memo to Mr. Rohrer on September 18th of 2003 about a phone conversation he had with Jean Couchet jerk-faced Gene Couchet about the 1995 Brown County call that Mr. Couchet also claimed to know nothing about in his deposition. But there's a memo from about a week after Stephen was released from prison, specifically t- him talking about the 1995 Brown County call. He so just, everybody's lying. He just, just had amnesia. That is convenient-ass amnesia. It's all I'm going to say. They were all liars. Liars. So, I mean, I don't think it gets any more clear that the the 1995 call alone was a Brady violation of withholding evidence. Period. There is, I mean, there's no other way to interpret that, right? And the, uh, the thing about it was that call, because they didn't write the report until after Stephen had already been released from prison, and it wasn't in the file. It was like in a safe in the office. It wasn't in Stephen's file. The investigators from the DCI knew nothing about it. They didn't know about this call. They weren't, nobody told them about the call. Nobody showed them documentation about the call. They didn't know anything about this 1995 call. So I wonder, like, if that call information had been given to the DCI investigators, would the AG's opinion been different? Because that's a Brady violation. That's illegal. Possibly, but possibly not. That pushes it into potentially criminal is what I'm trying to say. But I guess since she wouldn't even admit there was an ethical issue, then I mean... That's why I'm saying possibly not. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, this call is just one of the biggest potential tipping points in the lawsuit, right? Like, I think once that call got brought up, and everyone starts getting questioned about it. And a bunch of people are freaking lying. And they know it. Like, Stephen's attorneys are like, we know you're lying. Like, we know you knew. There's memos to prove it. And I think everyone got scared. Like, really, really scared. There's another reason they got scared. Around the same time that the brown call stuff is being brought up, the insurance companies that work, that serve on behalf, you know, they, they handle all of these kinds of things where 
uh, lawsuits are brought against the police or the district attorney's office or whatever, the, typically what happens is there's a settlement arrangement outside of court and the insurance companies pay for it. So it's usually pretty cut and dried. It's able to be kept out of the media. It's super simple. And that's the end of it. Well, the insurance company is looking at all of the allegations against the law enforcement officers and the county officials. All They had three insurance companies, I believe, three or four separate insurance companies, and every one of them refused to pay any damage claims that came up because their actions were so egregious or their alleged actions were so egregious that the insurance companies said, nope, we're not paying, which means if Stephen won his lawsuit, that $36 million would have come directly out of the pockets of the county and the sheriff and the district attorney's office, not the insurance, them. Which would have bankrupt pretty much everybody. Every single one of them and would have bankrupted the county itself too. So everyone is scared. Everyone's like, oh, God damn it. We're screwed if he wins. Completely, totally, 100% up shit creek without a paddle, we're screwed. So they had to do something, right? They had to figure out a way to neutralize Stephen Avery and make this lawsuit go away. There would definitely be a strong motivation to do something. Well, the way I like to put it is, the, the Manitowoc County had 36 million reasons to make Stephen Avery disappear. There's only a few ways you can do that. One would be to literally eliminate him, right? I mean, which would probably be the easiest way, but it's also the most illegal way. It would also be the most suspicious. Oh, sure. If Stephen just up and disappeared one day, yeah, definitely, definitely sus- suspect. The other way would be to make sure that he gets, I don't know how to put this. Um, one, another way to make sure Stephen Avery goes away is to make sure he goes down for something, right? To make, and, and it has to be something really, really bad. Something so bad that, that everyone would turn their backs on him, including his own defense team. They'd drop the lawsuit. Everything would go away. Or at very least, they could settle it out of court for a minimal amount of money just to make it you know, go away and they wouldn't have to admit any wrongdoing because that's how settlements work. And it would be over. And nobody would be bankrupt and uh, no law enforcement officers would potentially do jail time of their own because that was a possibility at this point. And everything would be hunky-dory, right? I mean, no one cares about Stephen Avery. He's just a nobody, right? No one cares. And uh, it kind of seems like that's exactly what they ended up doing. And uh, we're going to get into that in the next episode of, of what happened kind of mid-lawsuit. They, they were right in the middle of the depositions, and uh, something really terrible happened. And it very conveniently, in my opinion, linked to Steven. And so we will talk, anyone who's seen Making a Murderer knows anything about it, knows exactly where we're going. But for those of you who know nothing about it, it gets pretty bad and kind of scary and has a lot of um, implications that this kind of thing could happen to anybody. So you have to be really careful whose toes you step on, right? Like... 
I don't know how to put that. How would you like you? It gives people pause, I think, and makes them think that they have to be careful who they they point the finger at. You know, the old adage, "Don't rock the boat if you're standing in it." I don't even know where that adage comes from, but yeah, basically that's yeah. Don't rock the boat when you're when you're sitting in the boat, because Lord only knows. So we're going to talk about that in the next episode. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we will catch you all next time. Bye bye. Bye. Ultimately, the system works. Consequences. <laughs>